Hello, everyone. Welcome back to our podcast. And uh, we're so glad that you are here with us. Luke cannot be with us uh, this evening. And uh, Lachlan is not with us either. But back by popular demand, we have Clancy uh, to talk to us about biblical worldviews. My name's Cameron, and I'm recording from Launceston, Tasmania. Yeah, Ken here. I'm also recording from Launceston. And welcome back, Clancy, popular Clancy. (laughs) Thank you. Salutations from Sydney. Now, this lesson this week is on a biblical worldview, and uh, I'm not exactly um, certain what the term might mean. It's not clear to me uh, what the term worldview means. What comes to mind when we when we think about what a worldview what a worldview is? Ringing silence from everybody. Mm. Well, there we go. Um, uh, that uh, says something, I think. Well, I think it's really, I mean, we, I think a very basic explanation of it is that it is your, the way in which you see the world, the way in which you understand fundamentally how things work and how things should be, how people should treat each other, you know, what your place in the, in the world is. So if I said it was an ideology, how does that fit with a worldview? See, I think, I think that's the way people often what people often mean when they say worldview, they they mean your sort of your uh, your yeah your ideological out, outlook on on the world and the universe and yourself. But I think it's it's so your worldview is you know the way you see other people is so influenced by the cultural sort of connections that you have and the particular place and time you're in, and this is why a term like biblical worldview sort of rings a bit of an alarm bell for me because the Bible covers such a long period of time and happens across so many cultures that, you know, even the Old Testament, which you would assume you say, oh, you know, this is one worldview, this is the Jewish worldview or the Hebrew worldview. You know, it starts in, you know, the story of Abraham. If we, if we go from the story of Abraham, that begins in Ur, and then you go and all of us, you know, we're in Egypt and then we're in Israel and then, you know, we're in Babylon and then we're in Assyria. And then you come to the New Testament, and we're all over the Greek world. You know, that's a lot of, that's a huge amount of time that we're covering. That's technological development, which changes your worldview. Um, that's, different lifestyles, you know, plenty. I mean, Abraham exactly. was nomadic. And by the time you get to Babylon as a global mm-hmm. superpower, you're talking big cities, Organized armies, postal services, um, mm-hmm. yeah, heaps of structure. You know the difference between those worldviews must be fairly significant. Yeah, I mean, even if you look at the difference between, uh, you know, very early Israel, just coming out of the the wilderness when you're you're all camped around the tabernacle, you know, you don't have to go anywhere to see. The, the smoke rising from the sac- evening sacrifice. It's right there. It's, it's, it's right there. And then you move to, you know, the time of Solomon and there's a temple in Jerusalem and you live way up north in Dan. You have to come down to Jerusalem. The difference in just your picture, just the understanding of your relationship to your, you know, religion changes as the Bible moves on. And so I, I'm really intrigued by this term biblical worldview and what, what is meant by it. Or does it mean uh, the worldview that I have 
based on the fact that I'm a uh, 21st century uh, white uh, male living in Australia uh, and reading the Bible and seeing what I think the Bible was intended to mean uh, by its original author. But it can't mean that, Ken, because if the biblical worldview is being upheld as a... um, as an ideal, that we should all aspire to have a biblical worldview. But all that a biblical worldview means is our current efforts to fit the Bible into the world that we happen to find ourselves in. Then um, it's, it isn't a worldview then, in the sense that a biblical worldview today is going to be different to a biblical worldview 300 years ago, different to a biblical worldview in 300 years' time. But I guess they have, they have said it's a biblical worldview, or is it the biblical worldview? Yes, that that's a good question. I mean, even even the crux of this conundrum for me is that Western Christian, you know, one of the hallmark phrases of Western Christianity is when we talk about the time that we accepted Jesus as our personal savior, who died for our own particular sins. And this is a an example of how we our picture of what Christianity is about and the fundamental sort of questions of or, or the fundamental moment of Jesus in that comes down to me and myself because we live in a hyper-individualistic society. We have all grown up with extremely individual, individual, individualistic worldviews where it's about me and how I fit in, you know, how my view of the world. But all of the Bible is exists, all the characters in the Bible, all the narratives in the Bible, all the all of the stuff in the Bible happens in collectivist cultures mm. Mm. where it's about us. You know, Jesus is the Messiah who comes to Israel. Um, and then that is the message that goes to all the world, and then the end will come. You know, there is a it is a and there's you know it, it is a collectivist it's an understanding of us as a community. The people, yes, they accept Jesus as their personal saviour. Of course they do. But the fundamental thing that happens is they join the body of Christ. They join the community of Jesus. This is the, these are the words Paul uses when he describes what it's about. That, does, does that mean it's not true that they accept Jesus as their personal saviour? They join the body of Christ. That's a different mm. thing to accepting Jesus as your personal saviour. Indeed, well, then w- w- where in the New Testament does it say, I must accept Jesus as my personal saviour? I'm not uh, sure. That... If you confess with your lips, lips that Jesus Christ is Lord, yeah, but I guess. That, that, that's um, that's you know, a different... You must be born again. It's certainly, yeah, that's not, Jesus. certainly not that phrase. Um... No, I, exactly. That is, a, that is a particularly Western, and we are, you know, a... a you know, post-Reformation, Enlightenment sort of. And this, I mean, actually, I was listening to last week's podcast just the other day and there were, I wanted to interject <laughs> at, well, at, into the conversation. <laughs> I can at one point in which when you were talking about um, oral societies, um, which is a part of my research at the moment. And there is one of the things that I th- that is misunderstood about an oral society is we often imagine an oral society or an illiterate society, as I think was, was some of the terms that you guys used last week, as an individualistic society in which no one has access to information. 
because we imagine it as, you know, there are libraries and people can't read books um, because that's where the that's where the information is stored. But oral cultures are collectivist cultures in which information is shared amongst people and is stored not in books but in people. Um, and the people have access to knowledge because they live in a, in a hyper-connected community in which things happen in public spaces, in public public domains. And so it's it's a little bit like – so wh- I was saying that because I, I noticed that that was part of the conversation you guys were having, and it is a way we tend to read the Bible. So that, as, that says something about our worldview. Exactly, I mean, our worldview and we can't escape our own worldview when we read out the Bible. Yeah. So it, how, how do we turn our worldview into a biblical worldview without it being – just a morphing and mishmash of the two. I don't. I don't think that's possible. And was there? What is it the case that the people in the Bible had a worldview that was without problems? I, I mean, they, they, you, you couldn't point to a single group of people trying to follow God who whose worldview helped them and never harmed them. Uh, so um, it's not clear to me why we should aspire to a biblical worldview. Well, depending on what you mean by the biblical worldview. Do, do you mean the, the worldview that David had? Or do you mean the worldview that Abraham had? Or do you mean the worldview that Paul had, perhaps? How could we ever have even the worldview that Paul had? Uh, because uh, Paul didn't live in a world of, uh, of, of supermarkets and electricity and a growth economy um, and uh, uh, internet uh, and social media. Uh, he didn't have the language uh, that we have. He certainly had his own language skills, uh, but it was a different language. Mm-hmm. And uh, might our worldview, in fact, be framed by our language? Indeed, our ability uh, to conceive of things and to express our conception um, is constrained and facilitated by the language that we speak. Um, so does that affect our worldview? Uh, I think that... Uh... Our, the technology we have at least and and when you were talking about language can i was thinking of uh, emoji i can never figure out what they mean um <laughs> i mean i mean yeah I, I, you, can, you can get a general idea with a smiley face but yeah. which, or a face palm yeah yeah, or, that yeah, yeah that's a very good one but which level of smiley face am i meant to use and what does the mm. open mouth mm. mean uh and yeah, i i've i always fear that i'm going to insult somebody by sending the wrong emoji <laughs> uh, in which case i should always just finish off every text conversation that includes an emoji with a face palm to indicate that i really don't know what i'm talking about <laughs> i think the best example of this is is some people who think lol means lots of love not laugh out loud and text in response to my you know i can't come over today my grandma died with lol meaning lots of love but of course that doesn't go down so well. Well, I have a family member uh, who thinks exactly the same thing and runs the risk of doing that quite regularly. (laughs) The point is, particularly in the internet age, these things are decided more or less by the majority. And if a majority of people decide it means lots of love, that's what it will mean. And uh, But yeah, the emoji one's a tricky one. It certainly changes the way we communicate. I was uh, listening to a, a British comedian who's blind I was explaining that he, when he messages people, his phone read when he gets a text message, his phone reads it out to him, and it reads out the emoji, and the normal smiling, the most common smiling face, and keep in mind that he's blind, 
most common smiley face is read out to him as smiling face with normal eyes. <laughs> oh. oh dear! Oh. As opposed oh dear. to smiling face with sunglasses, or smiling face with winking eyes, or or something. But yeah, he he said, "What am I meant to use the one with sunglasses?" <laughs> oh boy, that's good. Uh, uh, by the way, the answer to your question earlier, Cam, is it a biblical worldview or the biblical worldview? And the answer is the lesson talks about the eyes of the Lord, the biblical worldview. So it's clearly implicit that there is only one biblical worldview. And we ought therefore try to ascertain it, ought we not? Oh dear. Mm. Um, <laughs> well, we're, we're almost, what, halfway through our podcast, so I, I think we're going to run out of time. We've mentioned Paul a couple of times, and Locke suggested that we turn to... In absentia. Yeah, in absentia. That, that he, he would like to hear our thoughts on um, Paul visiting the Greeks in Acts 17. Well, why don't we read through that? Um, so this is, I think the section he was wanting was when Paul's in Athens. Um, so that's verses 16 to 34-ish. Yeah. Right, well, I might, I might kick off. I'm reading from the NIV and I'll read the first section. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as the marketplace day by day, those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating for foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the, what's this word, Clancy? Areopagus. 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 Where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And doing podcasts. And doing podcasts. Uh Yeah. (laughs) So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I noticed that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription on it, To an unknown God. This God, whom you worship without knowing, is the one I'm telling you about. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples, and human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God, and perhaps feel their way toward him, and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men 
became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Wow, there's so much in there. One of the things that struck me was that obviously Paul is fluent with more, or at least um, versed and studied in and aware of more than a biblical worldview. Yeah. So he, he has read the Greek poets and he, he at least is, it makes you know a very deliberate effort to speak in a way that they'll understand. And at the start of the story, it says Paul was very distressed to see their gods. But when he stands up in front of them, he doesn't berate them. He is so diplomatic. I had an evangelist I had an evangelist tell me once that this this was an example of Paul doing the wrong thing. And that we shouldn't act like Paul does here, all diplomatic and, and trying to find common ground, because look, he only ended up with a couple of yeah, converts. Only a few and he never acted like this again. And so <laughs> Only a few men Paul became Paul. followers. Yeah, yeah. Well, only so it wasn't worth it. I mean, and Damaris, thank yeah, you. Yeah, but unless you're going to get a big number, don't bother. Yeah. yeah it's not yeah, worth it. That's right. Ooh. Yeah. The thing that I find really interesting about this is that we, it's a, thi- it's a thing about how terminology changes. And this is, again, this is a worldview issue because for the Greeks, the gods were many and it didn't actually matter how many there were um, because, and different places had different, names for different gods and uh they if they shared the same attributes it's sort of like well they're the same one you just call them something else and that's fine we don't care um and the the barrier between the divine and humankind was so thin you know there is plenty of stories in greek mythology of uh you know gods coming across and pretending to be men and then that even happens in acts paul and um barnabas are mistaken for zeus and hermes I think one of my favourite stories about the Romans who who had a similar sort of religious pantheon sort of idea of lots and lots of gods is when they showed up in England and they went to Bath and they found the hot springs in Bath, which which became the Roman baths, which is still there. And they saw the steam rising from this natural spring and they went, oh, this is obviously a holy place. You know, this is obviously a place, a thin place between the divine and man. What what God lives here? And the, the local um, Brighton said, Britain said, oh, well, this is the place of our God, Sulis. Oh, what does Sulis do? And they listed off all the things Sulis did. And they said, oh, that's just, that's like Minerva. We shall call this the shrine of Sulis Minerva. Um, and just the, the eagerness to, oh, well, yes, that God's the same as our God. Cool. You can keep worshipping that. So the, the, how comfortable the Greek world was with sort of absorbing other cults and other religious worldviews. And Christianity wasn't comfortable with that. It had a very Jewish worldview of the divine. And the one of the leading charges against early Christians was that they were atheists, which surprises a lot of people but they were atheists because they denied the plethora of the divine and were insistent on only one god so this you know look at all these statues you have and you have a god that you don't even know like that is so in line with what we know about how the greeks approached divinity the more the merrier Mm. well indeed idol was looked at the the 
phrase um, he seems to be advocating foreign gods as a as if you like a, a secular uh, or, or sorry a religious bigotry um, but in fact it may well not be that on that view it, it's just oh, simply look, there's a, more of them yeah, yeah yeah okay oh well I wonder which one that one's like so I think, yeah, what, what's he saying? Strange ideas. And I said, no, no, it's about foreign gods. We love this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and indeed, that the fact that they continue to ask supports that sort yeah. of view, doesn't it? Mm. But, I mean, it also draws um, into focus the fact that the pagans to which the early church were spreading the good news were people who had a concept of the divine. Mm. Which means they had much more yes. in common with each other than than either of them have with our culture. Mm, absolutely. And even down to the way in which you conduct your religion because you think about, you know, what what if we think about the Old, you know, Old Testament religion, what did they do in Israel? Um, they had festivals. They had community religious events. They had... You know, the calendar was set around religious um, events and experiences and pilgrimages. You had set um, set events that you did. You had blood sacrifices. Well, well, let's look at Greek religion. What do you have? Well, you have sacrifices. You go to the temple. You have religious events. You have communal cal- – your calendar is set about, you know, religious events. The sort of the practice of – I don't think – the, I don't think ancient Jews would have agreed with me saying this or even a modern Jewish reading of history perhaps that they had a lot in common with each other. But I think, I genuinely believe that you know ancient Israelite religion or, or let's say Second Temple Judaism of the Bible had more in common with Greek religious religion in practice in the practical sort of mm. way in which it happened in the community, than it does with the way we go to church on Saturdays. The very clean, you know, we have rituals of our own, but we don't, you know, have blood splashed on us um, and we don't have incense burning and we don't, you know, order our calendar around the appearance of the moon every month. True. It's just we um, live in an entirely different world. Um, yes. So that, uh, and that affects or infects our religion. And it, yeah. it is true that though I've, I've seen a lot of church strife um, at various churches, sometimes over such important things as the colour of the carpet. <laughs> it is. It has never yet gone to to having, you know, being covered with blood. Um, I think Coming it's somewhere it. in Acts, though. I'm sure it is, Cameron. I'm I'm sure there's somewhere about the colour of the carpet in Acts. Oh, good. It's, but see, even that church. even that aspect, this idea that religion is a thing that must the right practice must be defended. And, you know, people are stoned, they're beaten up, they're people just took religion really seriously, uh, more seriously, it seems, than religious people. Maybe that's not right. The expression of their regard for religious, correct religious practice, is radically different to the way we express the same. And also the 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 fact that it's so so sort of inextricably woven into society. So to join in your community, you must join in 
the sort of you you'd completely joined into the religious expression because that is a total part of society and community, mm. um, both in the Greek and the um, Jewish worlds. Mm. You know, there were definitely you know there's more variants in the Greek world because there's local gods, there's all sorts of different things. There's mystery cults and there's you know there's mainstream religion and there's there's foreign religions, but there is a the fact that you are joining in, that the religion is part of community, whereas, you know, what do we not talk about at the table, at the dinner table? Religion and politics. And, you know, re- religious is something much more private, much more personal mm. for us. Well, well, that's one of the areas in which a, a modern Western European worldview is different to the uh, worldview of Acts and Paul's time. Are there other differences that come to mind, Clancy? There's something that I think is it's actually really... I, I have never noticed this before in, in Acts 17, and I think it's a really important point about the difference between... For the Israelites coming out of Egypt, for example, the difference between their God and the gods of Egypt... Or here in Acts, the difference between the news of Jesus and the Greek gods. And that is here in, where is it? In verse verse 24. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. And human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. Now, I noticed that and I smiled a bit because I thought this is hilarious for Paul to say he doesn't live in temples because, you know, an Old Testament Jew would certainly say that God lived in the temple. Um, but the thing that is important is he has no needs. And that, I think, that is the crux of what I think is the difference. You know, all the other stuff we've been talking about and culture and how that affects your, your worldview the, the crux of the ideological worldview or your religious sort of your your big picture of the big ideas of the universe is that the point of temples for the Egyptian gods, let's go back to Israel and the, and the Exodus, is that those were temples where the gods were not only worshipped but served. Their needs were met. Mm. And in Greek temples, what are you there for? You're burning incense to the gods. You're serving their needs. You're giving them things that they want. And Well, and even in the Jewish and, temple, you... And then you look at the Jewish temple and that's not what it's about because what are people bringing? They're bringing sin offerings and they're bringing guilt offerings. And this is where God is serving the needs of the people. But in a sense, that it would be easy to misunderstand that and to think that you were serving God's need. And and indeed, that's one of the things that I've been wrestling recently with uh, lots of problems that I see in the forensic view of the atonement. Um, Mm. uh, And it seems to me that one of the things that Paul's saying here is that God doesn't need anything from us. Um, Yeah. uh, And uh, so often we seem to think that we need still to give God something, even if it's an intellectual assent to uh, yeah. a correct understanding of Jesus and his death on the cross. Um, we've, we've still got to give him something so that, so that or, or that he needed something which was 
uh, he needed his justice to be appeased, which was you know, the, the, the meaning of the cross. Um, and, and yet he, he, he doesn't need anything, at least not from human beings. I love that. Um, oh, what is that? It's that modern hymn. Behold the man on the cross, my sin upon his shoulder. How deep the Father's love yes. for us. I love that it hymn, but hymn. I will not sing the line, uh, the wrath of God was satisfied. Yeah. On the cross is Jesus' side, the wrath of God was satisfied. Because that's difficult to reconcile with some other parts of the Bible. Um, but Clancy, the trouble is that um, you obviously don't have a biblical worldview. Because, <laughs> because many Christians have ascribed that very strongly. But then, of course, many other... I completely agree with you. But many other Christians haven't. So you would know more about this than mm. I, but I believe that the sort of um, dominant theory of atonement in, say, the Middle Ages was that Christ needed to die to... To, aven- to appease the anger of God. To appease the anger of God or, or um, for his, his honour. honour. To be... Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he had been yeah. he'd been sort of like slandered against or offended mm. by sin, and God's honor needed restoring uh, because it was very much more of a shame honor based society mm. than ours. Mm. So, I mean, this is one of the interesting things that I think is that the Bible doesn't really seem to lay out. Uh, what am I trying to say? Uh, a it, worldview. It doesn't lay out a worldview. It says we have been saved. But the but the mechanism by which we're saved is not given a huge amount of attention, uh, as in obviously the mechanism involved Christ coming and and His dying for us. That seems to be something that's mm. part of the mechanism. But but how it fits together and how it works, we're told mm. we're just told that it does work. And different people with different worldviews have have just felt more comfortable with with different understandings of the mechanism, and presumably God doesn't mind that too much. Or he would have stepped in and given a more definitive demarcation of exactly what we should think. I mean, but I think that I mean that's that's been the sort of Adventist picture of the point of the Reformation, and you know that God has raised up people to correct wrong understandings of God, and if that's what we mean, I think that might be what the lessons getting at by worldview. It's the the way we understand what God is and who God is and what He wants of us. Um, but I, I mean, I, there are you are right. There aren't neat. This is exactly what it means. Sort of layouts in the Bible. You know, there is a, and I think mentioning the atonement is a great way of seeing in the way in which the different understandings of that have developed and can still all be sort of. You can find support for them. You know, Christus Victor it was a very early view of the atonement. That was that Christ was victorious over death. And victorious over the devil, that he had won. Seems and to that... be Paul's view about uh, victory over death in this passage, doesn't he? He's very clear about yes. the resurrection. That's what they say. Well, he's a babbler. He's talking about somebody rising from the dead. Um, yeah, and that, that's the part they really get. Yeah, that that really bothers them. And that it. But then you've you know you've got the you know the very famous sinners in the hand of an angry God picture of God mm. when when Jesus is appeasing God's anger mm. about sin and at you and. You know, these are you can find you can read a passage and go, well, you know, I can see how you could picture God that way when you read this story by itself. Um, but again, there's no, there's no, I don't, th- there's not a single worldview in the Bible. The Bible is such a big and rich collection of 
people and stories and timelines. I mean, Acts happens over 30 years. Um, and we can read it in one sitting and feel like it's just, you know, this happened over a few weeks. And people change their people change their picture of, of things. You know, Acts is a classic example of people constantly changing their worldview. Um, you know, you talked earlier of last season or uh, last quarter season um, or the one before about um, Cornelius and Peter. And that's a challenge to a worldview. Are Greeks allowed or are they not? Well, that's your worldview because your worldview is about who's in and who's out. And the, the important thing is that about that is that instruction to separate yourself from non-Jewish peoples uh, came from God. There, there are there are passages. So, and and you know, it's horses for courses, isn't it? Really, that there are some times where the appropriate message to say is, um, you are being far too lax about your identity as God's people, and you need to take it more seriously, and separate yourselves. From, and, and think of yourselves, you know, God's called you for a particular purpose and, and um, as God's chosen people, you need to take your identity more seriously. And then there's sometimes where God needs to say, just hang on, whoa, you guys are taking your identity as God's chosen people way too seriously. Uh, you've totally missed out on the fact that I, I'm interested in other nations, that they're valuable to me. I, I like people. I love My love is given to the rainfalls on the good and the bad and on the non-Jewish people as well as the Jewish people. Uh, so, so God seems to be at times sort of battling with people's worldview, and at different times he seems to just have different messages. Well, I wonder what sort of message he might have to a society that has a worldview that says uh, risk-free comfort is the highest human goal. <laughs> I wonder what Paul would say to a supermarket uh, or, or a shopping mall um, mm. uh, God um, if he came to meet people there Can I tell you a story about risk-free comfort? Stop me, Ken, if I've shared this on the podcast but it's a really insightful description, Ken because my, my students are very risk-adverse they 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 really want to avoid risk, which is which is good. And you know, it's interesting the the statistics on teenage pregnancies. Teenage pregnancies are falling. The number of um, people under the age of twenty binge drinking is falling. Uh, drink driving amongst teenagers falling. Uh, there's there's many good aspects to having young people being more careful about risk. So uh, you know, it's a new. This is a complicated, nuanced issue. Uh, but uh, they don't know how to cope with risks when they're there and certainly anxiety is more prevalent and uh, it's just it's just that attitude so um you know when you think of you know the stereotype i don't know okay so when i was growing up i had a friend who lived in singleton and the youths of singleton they're, 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 the way they celebrated the night out was to steal a tray from mcdonald's and sit on it and and put the rope around the tow ball of a car and get towed through the streets of Singleton at about 50 k's an hour going over speed Oh, bumps. I know what this story is. So, I don't. Um, yeah, it was Clinton. Clinton, <laughs> I don't think, was involved. Of course it was. I don't think Clinton was involved, Clancy, but he was He was witness to it anyway. Um, so you compare that as a sort of a worldview of of what it, what it means to live a, you know, a full life. 
the other day I was I was talking to my students about an aeroplane that we're building at school and the students are appalled that we're building it some of them at least that that their classmates are building an aeroplane they said who's going to fly it I said uh I'll fly it they said you might die I said well actually I'm I'm going to die anyway even if I don't fly the aeroplane and uh you know you don't achieve immortality by by not flying aeroplanes and they said, "No, but you might die. Um, you might die before you've done everything that you want to do." I said, "Well, I, I am certainly going to die before I've done everything that I want to do." Uh, that's absolutely. They said, "Yes, yes, but you might you might die at an inconvenient time." <laughs> and I said, "I said, what do you mean? What's a convenient time? Have you, have you got <laughs> have you got yours marked on a calendar already? Like what's what does that mean?" And that. They were they were really astonished that I'd take risks. I think that is a real noticeable shift in worldview in the last couple of decades, and it, and it's shown up in our occupational health and safety uh, laws. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that it's uh, wrong to be safe at work, um, uh, but uh, there are all sorts of ways that it manifests itself. One of my students the other day, Ken, suggested that the school blazer should be. Should be given out. This was in response to a new mandate that teachers have to wear high vis clothing when we're on duty. And one wow. of the students voiced concern that they feel a little unsafe at school. Could the school blazer be issued with a whistle and a light for attracting for attracting? <laughs> oh, that's so good. Oh. I told them that this particular student who asked me was very good at attracting attention without a whistle and a light. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Something that I think that's interesting about the Book of Acts is that every time the community, particularly in the first half of Acts, tries to set a boundary around, well, this is, this is, this is it, it expands outwards and it continues to sort of just overflow and blow out the borders they've put on what, you know, who, who's in and who's out. It keeps, it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, there's the the story that you talked about months ago, the um, Cornelius and, and Peter, and that comes out. And then you then it's – well, actually, it's earlier than that. It's the um, – or around the same time, you have the, the Ethiopian um, eunuch, eunuch as yeah. well. And then, you know, expands out and expands out. And then there's a man of Macedonia saying, come and help us, and it expands out again. And then you get to Lydia and it expands out again. And now Paul is in Athens. Mm. Um, and it just keeps getting bigger. And I think – that's also what happens in the life of Jesus. The community just keeps getting bigger. And that's that is the people's problem with him. That is the you know, the the arbiters of what is who is in and who is out, the, the religious leaders, the thing that they are mad about is that Jesus is saying that more people are allowed in yeah. than they are happy with. Yeah, yeah. You know, when he says, you know, if I'd gone to Tyre and Sardin, they they would have repented by now. And uh, what's what's so fascinating is that that's not a very popular message, but it's a really old hmm. message. I was just reading this week, uh, preparing for a sermon actually, on looking at the sibling rivalry in the Ishmael-Isaac case and in Esau and Jacob. And, it, and in mm-hmm. all of those cases, the story goes to huge pains to point out that God's chosen people have incredible faults and that many of the people they're surrounded with I have much higher standard of morals. They're, they're better people. 
<laughs> on many occasions, well, not universally, but on many occasions. It, it's just obvious from the plot, but it's not just the plot, it's the way it's written. Who has higher morals? Is it Sarah or is it Hagar? And, you know, when you when you look at even Esau and Jacob, we give Esau a bad rap. Honestly, there's, there's one passage divided when Esau sells his birthright and it lasts for a few verses where it points out that Esau has a problem with being impulsive and and for for not respecting his birthright. So, that, I mean, that's fair. Esau has faults. How many pages are devoted to Jacob's faults? It's, it's pages and pages and pages. And it's not clear to me that being a scheming deceiver is, in fact, any better than being impulsive. So so this idea that that God's people are not, marked by any special moral superiority is so old and and i mean it happens all through the new testament you've got that bit in is it first or second corinthians mm. when paul is telling them off for a long passage and say you know what you are doing is not even done amongst the pagans yeah yeah so it's such an old message and now was it on this podcast or was it in a different conversation ken that we that we postulated a, a good summary of the bible might be that god has much more problems with his saints than his sinners. That was on this podcast. Uh, I was on the podcast. I remember you saying ah, it. Ah, good. Well, it, it seems to bear bear out. And uh, the the thing that worries me is that that part of the worldview of, of of the Jewish nation, uh, the the worldview that says God's chosen us and we're a bit special, that part of the biblical worldview we seem to adhere to fairly fairly strongly in the Adventist Church. And I think that's uh, that. I think that's true that we do. But I think if you look, there is a very strong thread, a very strong. There is a very strong case, I think, throughout the entire Bible, of a a world, a biblical worldview, which is that of radical inclusion. Because when you look at the laws of Israel, yes, the of ancient Israel, yes, a lot of them are about what you have to do to be inside the community and what's right and what's wrong and what the borders are of behaviour. But you also have who's included in the community, widows, orphans and aliens, over and over and over and True. over again. Woe to you who exclude those who are on the edges. Mm. Woe to you who make the lives of the marginalised harder. What does Jesus talk about all the time? You are making it too hard for people. You are putting too many burdens. You are keeping people outside. I came to bring people life, and I have sheep not in the sheepfold. What do we have happen in Acts? Every time they think they're at the edges of the borders, the community spills out, and Jesus and God says, "Go further and go wider and let more people in." And and the people they let in, it does change the church absolutely. And this is one we, we we're very interested in evangelism, uh, and we we share the good news. And if someone says, yes, I think I'd like to join your community. We sit them down we say, right, well, here's the worldview that you need to have to be part of this community. And after you've done these studies, then you can then you can be part of our community. I'm not sure if we genuinely really want lots of people to join our church because the odds are very small that if people turned up en masse to join the Adventist church, that we could sort of process them through the machinery to make sure they turn out good Adventists, if you know what I mean. You know, if people just turned up en masse on the doorstep and said, we're convinced Christ is coming soon, we, we want to know him more, we're in. What if we were the minority? And this is, I mean, this is the thing that makes me nervous about trying to define a biblical worldview because that is 
making God too small. And if we can say, well, this is how, this is, this is the Bible tells us that we have to look at everything this way. I, it's so easy to say, well, it's so easy to, it, it's, it's impossible that you are not doing, I am reading the Bible with my worldview and this is what it's telling me it says. God has to be bigger than our, our picture of him. Indeed, perhaps he's bigger than a biblical worldview.